Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This lecture is a continuation of our adult reconstruction lecture series. Today, we will focus on basic science topics relating to total joint reconstruction. We will cover implant properties, periprosthetic joint infection, and issues of wear and osteolysis. As always, we will cover key testable topics found on in-training and board examinations. All right, let's get started. Let's initially begin with a rather interesting topic, implant fixation. This is an ever-evolving field and is interesting in the sense that we are trying to optimize the interaction between normal human bone and metal. So let's begin with how we fix metal to bone. There are two broad camps of fixation, cemented and cementless. Cemented fixation makes use of polymethylmethacrylate, or PMMA, while cementless fixation, known as biologic fixation, utilizes bone ingrowth and ongrowth materials. So how does cement fixation work? Cement fixation acts as a grout, bonding the metal surface to the trabecular bone by creating interlocks within the trabecular meshwork. Interestingly, because of the increased porosity in osteoporotic patients, cement is actually able to penetrate even deeper, creating a solid fixation surface. Therefore, cement fixation is an excellent option in patients with osteoporosis, previously irradiated bone, and those with stovepipe femurs that lack the cortical support for a press-fit femoral stem in a total hip arthroplasty situation. During cementing technique, the femoral stem should be fully coated in cement with no area of metal abutting the bone. Ideally, there is at least 2 millimeters of cement surrounding a smooth femoral stem that has no sharp corners capable of acting as a stress riser. If the metal touches the bone, or if there is less than 2 millimeters of cement between the stem and the bone, this is known as a cement mantle defect. It is important to avoid these mantle defects as they can act as an area of stress concentration and can contribute to early failure and loosening of the implant. Cemented stems are also thinner and cannot tolerate as much cantilever bending as large diameter stems. This may cause the stem to break at the junction between the relatively thicker tapered segment and the thin distal stem segment. Cemented acetabular components fail at a higher rate than cemented stems in total hip arthroplasty. This is because the cement is subjected to shear stress when placed behind the acetabular component. Cement is excellent at resisting compression forces, which makes it ideal for placement within the femoral stem. However, it is weaker when subjected to shear and tension forces, which contributes to early failure when placed behind an acetabular component. Limiting the cement porosity by mixing it under a vacuum-sealed container also decreases stress points within the cement. Cement should be reserved for elderly, low-demand patients. Young, active patients are better served with a biologic or press-fit stem system. So now, what is biologic fixation? There are two broad types, bone ingrowth material and bone ongrowth material. With bone ingrowth, the metal is a porous structure that allows bone to grow into the pores. The optimal pore size is between 50 and 150 micrometers. Porosity of 40 to 50% allows for the most robust bone growth. It is important to ensure that the gap between the metal and the bone is less than 50 micrometers, and that the implant is placed with rigid fixation that allows for only a minimal amount of micromotion, ideally less than 150 micrometers. Anything over this value will lead to the formation of fibrous tissue or a fibrous fixation, which leads to early implant failure. There are two frequently utilized techniques when placing an implant with biologic fixation, the press fit technique and the line-to-line -line technique. With the press fit technique, an implant typically one size with a press fit technique, the implant is typically one size larger than the final brooch and this is impacted into place. 
Hoop stress provides the initial stability for fixation. As you can imagine, intraoperative fracture is the most common complication of a press fit technique. With line-to-line -line technique, the same size implant as the final brooch is placed. With line-to-line -line technique, screws are frequently utilized for final fixation. Imagine placing an acetabular component with the same size reamer and screw fixation backup. Now, how about bone on-growth techniques? The material is always a titanium alloy and it is prepared by blasting it with an abrasive material. This creates micro-divots within the surface. The peaks and valleys of the micro-divots are measured with a value called surface roughness. The amount of surface roughness directly relates to the strength of biologic fixation. Bone on-growth materials are always placed using a press-fit technique. The fixation strength of bone on-growth material is less than that of bone in-growth material. Therefore, it tends to be reserved for femoral stems as opposed to acetabular components. Alright, how about calcium hydroxyapatite coating? Bone in-growth and bone on-growth materials can be coated with calcium hydroxyapatite. This allows for more rapid biologic incorporation. Osteoblasts, in essence, will line up on the calcium hydroxyapatite coating and begin to grow toward the bone. Therefore, the gap between the bone and the metal will be closed from two sides instead of just growing from the bone towards the metal. Alright, let's talk for a second about an interesting phenomenon that occurs between bone and implant material. Stress shielding. For this topic, I want to focus specifically on stress shielding in total hip arthroplasty. Stress shielding refers to the fact that with a well-fixed femoral stem, patients may experience proximal metaphyseal bone loss. This phenomenon can be explained by Wolf's Law. As the stem transfers the stress down through the neck, down to the tip of the stem, it bears the brunt of the stress forces, allowing the stress to bypass the proximal metaphyseal bone. Wolf's Law states that bone formation increases in areas of mechanical stress and decreases in areas without stress. Therefore, because the stiff metal stem allows the stress to bypass the proximal metaphyseal bone, the bone in this area begins to resorb. The area where the stress exits the stem distally may show increased bone formation in what we call spot welding. The stiffness of the stem is the major contributing factor to stress shielding. This becomes even more evident in extensively porous coated stems with a large stem diameter. In tapered stems with a proximal metaphyseal pore coating that rely on fixation within the metaphyseal bone, stress shielding is minimized because it passes on some of the stress into the more proximal fixation segment. Alright, so that's stress shielding and how it relates to total hip arthroplasty. Next, we're going to talk about the formation of wear debris and osteolysis. So let's first start off with how debris gets formed. There are five types of wear that you'll encounter on exam question. Adhesive wear is formed at the microscopic level as the polyethylene sticks to the prosthesis and debris slowly gets pulled off. This is the most important wear mechanism contributing to the osteolytic process. Abrasive wear occurs when there is a defect in the prosthesis surface that scrapes away pieces of polyethylene. Third body wear is caused by particles within the joint space. For example, think of pieces of cement left behind causing abrasion of the polyethylene. Volumetric wear determines how many total particles get created. This is directly related to the radius of the prosthetic head in total hip arthroplasty. The larger the replacement head, the more volumetric wear will occur. Linear wear is the distance that the femoral head can penetrate through the polyethylene liner. Linear wear can most accurately be measured with radioisometric analysis. During this process, tantalum beads are implanted within the bones and distances between the beads can be measured on radiographs. 
Wear also depends on the integrity of the bearing surface. A linear wear rate of greater than 0.1 millimeters per year may lead to osteolysis. Again, know that value. Wear rates need to be below 0.1 millimeters per year. Highly cross-linked, ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene generates smaller particles and is more wear-resistant than non-cross-linked polyethylene. Metal on polyethylene has the longest track record of any bearing surface. What bearing surface has the lowest wear rate? Ceramic on ceramic. Ceramic on ceramic bearings in total hip arthroplasty have the lowest wear rates and coefficient of friction. Ceramic is, however, brittle and has low fracture toughness. There is also a risk of squeaking. Stripe wear is a phenomenon unique to ceramic on ceramic bearings and is seen as a crescent-shaped line on the femoral head caused by partial subluxation and impaction of the head on the rim of the acetabular cup. Metal-on-metal bearings in total hip arthroplasty have made the news as of late. Metal ions are detectable in the urine and serum at 5 to 10 times the normal value. Ion concentration is highest at 12 to 24 months and then normalizes at a steady state of particle generation. Metal-on-metal has a very low wear rate. However, wear debris stimulates lymphocyte proliferation. This can lead to pseudotumor formation around the implant. Ion levels increase with metal-on-metal wear when there is a smaller head size or cup abduction angle greater than 55 degrees. The increased cup angle leads to edge loading. Remember that there is no increased cancer risk associated with the elevated metal ion levels, and this has been tested in the past. Titanium is relatively soft, and remember, it has a Young's modulus approximately that of cortical bone, and therefore it is not commonly used for burying surfaces. So now let's talk for a second about polyethylene. Polyethylene is a very temperamental material, and there are several factors that can influence its mechanical properties. Not respecting these variables can lead to catastrophic failure of the implant due to accelerated wear patterns. Due to the inherent load-dissipating properties of polyethylene, it is imperative that the thinnest portion be at least 8 millimeters thick. A highly congruous implant geometry can help to dissipate contact stress and spread the load more evenly, minimizing wear patterns. Polyethylene is irradiated during sterilization and to promote cross-linking. During the sterilization process, polyethylene should be irradiated in an inert gas or a vacuum environment to prevent oxidation. The presence of oxygen will cause the material to become oxidized, leading to early failure and decreased mechanical properties. In shaping the final implant, the process of machining the plastic to the desired shape will leave different mechanical properties throughout the material. Instead of machining the material into the final shape, it is more desirable to use direct compression molding of the polyethylene. With direct compression molding, the plastic resin is directly formed into the final shape of the material. Let's talk now about aseptic loosening. Aseptic loosening is caused by particle-induced osteolysis or poor initial fixation. Osteolysis occurs when there are more than 10 billion particles per gram of tissue. These particles are less than 1 micron in size. Polyethylene wear debris stimulates macrophages which induce an inflammatory response. Cytokines are generated by the macrophages including tumor necrosis factor, platelet-derived growth factor, IL-1, IL-6, and VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. The increased TNF-alpha and VEGF stimulate rank ligand production. And what does rank ligand do? The rank ligand and IL-1 activate osteoclasts, causing them to resorb bone. 
This eventually leads to implant loosening, micromotion, and propagation of the effective joint space until the seal between the bone and the metal no longer exists and loosening of the entire stem or implant occurs. A circumferentially proximally coated femoral stem with a bone ingrowth material can limit osteolysis from propagating distally. During osteolysis, markers of bone turnover can be detected at increased levels in the urine, such as N-telopeptide. Alright, so that's a brief review of material science with regard to joint arthroplasty. Let's move on now to one of the more devastating complications associated with total joint arthroplasty, periprosthetic infection. Periprosthetic joint infections are a rare but severe complication. They occur approximately 1% of the time in primary hip arthroplasty and between 1 and 2% of the time in primary knee arthroplasty. The frequency of infection increases dramatically during revision surgery. A revision knee arthroplasty has a rate of approximately 6%, while a revision hip arthroplasty has a rate of approximately 3% infection. We try to prevent infections by maintaining meticulous sterile technique and ensuring perioperative antibiotics are administered within 60 minutes of the surgical start time. Risk factors for infection include conditions that lead to problems with wound healing, including diabetes, obesity, and smoking, as well as any disease state or medication that can possibly act as an immunosuppressant. The most common infecting organisms are Staph aureus and Staph epidermis. Fungal infections with candida can be particularly hard to treat. We classify infections based on the time frame in which they occur. The reason for the time frame cutoff is we are trying to decide if the bacteria has had enough time to create a biofilm. A biofilm, or glycocalyx, is typically formed on the implant within four weeks of infection. The bacteria are essentially able to hide within the biofilm, becoming exponentially more resistant to the antibiotic treatment. In fact, the presence of a biofilm allows bacteria to become approximately 1,000 times more resistant to antibiotics. The biofilm is comprised of a polysaccharide matrix. We define infection as acute or chronic based upon a three-week cutoff. Therefore, if the infection has been present for less than three weeks, we consider it acute. If it has been present for greater than three weeks, we consider it chronic. Patients with a periprosthetic joint infection will typically present with new onset pain. Patients with a total knee periprosthetic infection may show swelling, erythema, discharge, or an effusion at the knee. Chronic infections tend to present with more subtle or insidious symptoms. The patient may have a new onset in pain or declining function. If the patient presents with a draining sinus tract, then there is no question it is a definite periprosthetic joint infection. Imaging for chronic infections may show a periosteal reaction or bone resorption on radiographs. Bone scans are sensitive for detecting infection, however they are not very specific. PET scans which utilize radioactive glucose molecules can identify areas of high metabolic activity and are sensitive and specific for diagnosing infections. If you're concerned about periprosthetic joint infection, the initial workup should include a laboratory analysis with white blood cell count, ESR, and CRP. An elevated ESR and CRP are highly sensitive and specific for periprosthetic joint infection. Remember that CRP returns to baseline levels within 21 days, while it takes 90 days for an ESR to become normal following surgery. An increase in IL-6 has also recently been shown to have the highest correlation with periprosthetic joint infection. Joint aspiration should be performed to confirm a diagnosis and obtain cultures. A white blood cell count of greater than 1100 with greater than 64% neutrophils is suggestive of infection. If the aspiration comes back equivocal, a repeat aspiration can be performed in one week if clinical suspicion remains high. Gram standing cultures should be ordered, however, these are not incredibly sensitive and a negative result should not guide your treatment. If, however, you have a positive gram stain, 
or are able to grow the same organism in three out of five cultures obtained during surgery, then it can be considered a definite periprosthetic joint infection. Intraoperative frozen sections with greater than five neutrophils per high power field also indicates a probable infection. Cultures should be held for a minimum of 14 days in order to identify more indolent organisms such as P. acnes. So how do we treat periprosthetic joint infections? First and foremost, it is imperative to identify and culture the organism prior to initiating antibiotic treatment. Again, if it is known that the infection has been present for less than three weeks, it can be considered an acute infection. Therefore, we would assume that no biofilm has been created and the implants may be salvageable. The patient will be taken to the operating room for a radical debridement of the tissue, including a synovectomy and lavage. The modular bearings would be exchanged, including the femoral head in a total hip and the polyethylene spacer in a total knee. The patient would be placed on six weeks of IV antibiotic therapy, hopefully tailored specifically to the offending organism. If the infection has been present for greater than three weeks, it would be defined as chronic. In this case, it is likely that a biofilm is formed and the implants are no longer salvageable. In the United States, we favor a two-stage resection arthroplasty. These patients will be taken to the operating room for implant removal, debridement of all the soft tissue, lavage, and placement of an antibiotic-impregnated cement spacer. Increasing porosity of the cement spacer allows for increased elution of the antibiotics, and this can be done by hand-mixing the cement or mixing without a vacuum seal. Articulating spacers can help to retain the joint motion, joint space, and increase the ease of a revision surgery. Patients will be administered six weeks of IV antibiotic therapy, and after these six weeks, the patient is given a two-week antibiotic holiday. They will be monitored clinically for any recurrence of infection during this time. A laboratory analysis will also be obtained to ensure white blood cell count and CRP also continue to trend downward and have not had any upticks since the cessation of antibiotics. If those criteria are met, the patient will be taken back to the operating room for a second stage reconstruction. In Europe, some surgeons have chosen to do a single stage replacement arthroplasty for healthy patients, in other words, good hosts, with an infected primary total hip arthroplasty and have demonstrated rather good results. Other possible treatments include chronic suppressive therapy for those who are unfit for surgery, a resection arthroplasty in which the implants are removed and not replaced, and this is reserved for patients that are medically unfit, non-ambulatory, or have failed multiple revision surgeries. This may be combined with an arthrodesis procedure. Final salvage for an infected total knee that has failed multiple attempts at curative therapy is an above-knee amputation. And final salvage for an infected total hip arthroplasty in a patient that cannot be treated by other methods would be a hip disarticulation. All right, that concludes our talk on total joint arthroplasty, material science, and periprosthetic joint infection. Points to remember for infection are the three-week time cutoff defining as acute or chronic, aspiration values of 1,164% neutrophils, and that on the American boards, we prefer a two-stage revision surgery for chronic infections. All right, as always, please check back for any updates and additions to the lecture, and thank you very much for listening.